The lesson from the Hebrew Scriptures that the Common Lectionary gives us for the first Sunday of Advent is this beautiful prayer poem from the prophet Isaiah, chapter 64. O God, that you would tear open the heavens and come down so that the mountains might quake at your presence as when fire kindles brushwood and the fire causes water to boil to make your name known to your adversaries so that the nations might tremble at your presence. When you did awesome deeds that we did not expect, you came down and the mountains quaked. From ages past, no one has heard, nor ear perceived, nor eye seen any God beside you who works for those who wait for God. You meet those who gladly do right, those who remember your ways. Lord, you are our Father, we are the clay, and you our potter. We are all the work of your hand. Please pray with me. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So that hymn we opened worship with this morning is called Christus Paradox or Christ the Paradox. It was written by a Canadian pastor named Sylvia Dunstan in 1984. And in this hymn, she describes Jesus with a series of battling dualities, like lamb and shepherd, the one of the narrow way and the broad love, prince and slave, the one we both scorn and crave, the one who walks beside us every day and yet sits forever at the right hand of God in power. Ms. Dunstan says that this hymn was inspired by the 19th century Danish philosopher Søren Kierkegaard. So what do you know about Kierkegaard? He was born on May 5, 1813, or about two months after his parents' wedding. His father, a wealthy widower with six children already, was 57 years old when his seventh child was born to remedy his loneliness, I guess, the elder Kierkegaard took up with one of his servant girls shortly after his first wife died so that Soren's servant girl mother was seven months pregnant on her wedding day. I guess Harvey Weinstein and Charlie Rose are not the only powerful men who have sex with employees who might feel trapped into yes. So a whiff of scandal followed Kierkegaard for all the days of his short life. He was pale, thin, sickly, perhaps epileptic, And little Soren was an unimpressive physical specimen indeed, but he was also rich. He was a trust fund baby. His father left him a small inheritance, which today would be worth about a half a million dollars, so that except for a prodigious output of philosophical works, Soren Kierkegaard never worked a day in his life. Unfortunately, he was not very thrifty and spent down his small fortune way too fast, and spent the last of it about two weeks before he died at the age of 42. There were some who said his death was a mercy because he never could have made a living any other way. He's sometimes called the melancholy Dane, even though Hamlet had been called that centuries before. I'd never noticed this before, but in fact, the name Kierkegaard is just Danish for churchyard. Yes, Kierkegaard churchyard and what do all churchyards have in them graves Kierkegaard spent his entire life living down the meaning of his name 
Never had any children, so far as we know, but when he was 27 years old, he fell in love with a 14-year-old girl. He waited till she was 18 and proposed to her. She was madly in love and accepted, but shortly after his proposal, he broke his engagement. She was heartbroken. She went on to marry somebody else and lived happily ever after. Kierkegaard spent all his days alone writing the philosophy books that no one would bother to read until 100 years after he was gone. But he tells us the moment when he decided he was going to be a philosopher and a writer. He says, I sat and smoked my cigar until I lapsed into thought. You are going to become an old man without ever doing anything worthwhile, I said to myself. Wherever you look, you see many people making life easier for human beings by inventing the telegraph or improving the railroad or inventing the steamship. And what are you doing? I said to myself. And suddenly the thought flashed into my mind. Since I am not able enough to make life easier for people, I will make it my life's mission to make life more difficult. I took it as my task to create difficulties everywhere. This notion pleased me immensely. Since he could not make life easier, Kierkegaard decided to make it harder, and one of the most prominent ways he decided to make it harder was by telling Christians that Christianity wasn't nearly as easy as the church tried to convince him it was. The church, you see, tried to water down pure Christianity so that it wouldn't taste so bad. But Kierkegaard taught that Christianity is just one hard paradox after another. Its claims are absurd which makes them difficult, but this doesn't make them untrue. And so paradox after paradox, you get to faith through doubt. You get to health through suffering. You become holy by realizing that you're not worthy to stand alone before God Almighty. One paradox after another. Paradox, of course, is a cognitive concept which comes from a Greek phrase which means contrary to popular opinion or beyond belief. Paradox as a cognitive concept sits next door to oxymoron which means patently foolish or obviously stupid. It's a contradiction in terms. It comes from the Greek oxy, clear as in oxygen, and moron which, which needs no translation. Here are some of my favorite oxymorons, contradictions in term, terms on the face of it. Act naturally. Resident alien. Airline food. Small crowd. Business ethics. Military intelligence. Bears football. Passive aggressive. Political science. Tight slacks. A definite maybe. Pretty ugly. Paradoxes and oxymorons are fecund and provocative. It's like doing a riddle or a puzzle. Kierkegaard said that a paradox was the attempt to discover something that thought cannot think. I love the way he puts it. The attempt to discover something that thought cannot think. So you see why Christ the Paradox is a perfect Advent sermon series, right? Because is there anything more paradoxical than the Christian claim that the eternal God comes crawling into time on the hands and knees of an infant who has nothing to his name but the rags on his body and the milk in his mother's breast. 
Christ is the one who is beyond us, but also walks beside us. And one of the lessons the church assigns for our contemplation during Advent is this beautiful poem prayer from the prophet Isaiah. Oh, that you would tear a hole in the heavens and come down. This is a prayer Isaiah prayed 500 years before Christ was born. A desperate prayer for desperate times. 70 or 80 years before Isaiah praised this prayer, the nation of Israel had, for all practical purposes, ceased to exist. Some of the people had been carted off to Babylon to serve as slaves and housekeepers for the aristocracy there. The temple had been destroyed. Jerusalem lay in ruins. And now, after 70 years of slavery, it's time to go home. But the thing is, there's no home to go home to. Jerusalem is smoldering ruins. The temple is just not there. Your holy city is a wilderness, the prophet prays. Zion has become a wilderness. Jerusalem, a desolation. After all this, will you restrain yourself, O Lord? And so Isaiah prays, Lord, tear a hole in the heavens and come down as you did before at Sinai. Isaiah is praying for a recapitulation of that moment when Moses comes down from Sinai with the stone tablets of the law, and there's that smoke and fire and rumbling at Sinai when God comes close and the people are afraid. And the reason the Christian church reads this lesson during the season of Advent is to support its outlandish claim that in Jesus Christ, God answers Isaiah's prayer. God tears a hole in the heavens and comes down in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. His Majesty Abdullah II has been king of Jordan since 1999. Now, Jordan is a tiny, poor nation with one of the lowest per capita GDPs in the Middle East. It has no water, no oil, no other natural resources, and yet Abdullah II is one of America's greatest friends in the Middle East. He survived the Arab Spring. He survived the Great Recession. It's a fairly calm place in Jordan under Abdullah II. He became king as a fairly young man. He was about 40 years old in 1999, and at the beginning of his reign, he made it a habit to stroll around his kingdom in civilian clothes. He likes to take his bureaucrats by surprise. He'll walk into, let's say, the Department of Motor Vehicles, disguised as a fat old one-eyed gimp in beat-up sneakers and a red checkered headdress. He pulls a pillow out of his gym bag and wraps it around his abdomen with a spare tire of fake fat. And then with other frustrated taxpayers, he waits in endless lines for clerks who will never show up and who do not care about serving fellow Jordanians. And so he spends five minutes knocking on the door of the land assessment office. And at one point, he stands directly underneath his official portrait in a poster on the wall, and nobody recognizes him. And when a reporter asks the king whether the bureaucrats at town hall are discovering what he's doing, he says, yes, I think maybe the word has gotten around. What should they be feeling? Panic, he says. Heads will roll. Reports will be made. King Abdullah says that he has become a little like Elvis. People see him where he's not and miss him where he is. The incognito king. Oh, that you would tear a hole in the heavens and come down. Praise Isaiah. 
When I read about King Abdullah II of Jordan, it made me think of a little parable Soren Kierkegaard himself told to get the gospel point across years and years ago. Mr. Kierkegaard imagines a mighty king, the ruler of the realm, who falls in love with a humble servant girl in a small village on the outskirts of his empire. Now, how should the king make his love known to this humble maiden? Should he show up at her humble cottage, garbed in all his royal splendor, with a full retinue of retainers? Maybe he would scare her half to death if he did that. Maybe she would think he was playing a bad joke on her. So how could he get her to fall in love with him? He could command her to fall in love with him. He could threaten to throw her in prison if she refuses to fall in love with him. But perhaps she would love him because she feared him. Perhaps she would love him because she has no other choice. You know what the king should do? He should set aside his riches and his power and court her in disguise. He should knock on her door disguised as a beggar and then he will be able to tell if she loves him. He will know that she, she is in love with him and not just with riches and power. And if the king is truly royal and loving, he will be ready even to remain a beggar and never claim again the privilege of his throne. And something like that, according to the Christian church, is what happened at Bethlehem 2,000 years ago. It's an outlandish hypothesis it is a thought that thought cannot think. But this is Advent, and I invite you to think it nonetheless. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Amen.